And we thank everybody who participated in our music this morning. Wonderful stuff. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we'll be starting at today. Hebrews chapter 1. I've anticipated this for a long while, so you have too. I've been excited to hear how many of you are, have been reading Hebrews the last few weeks and getting prepared. Some of you even have bought some commentaries or follow along and so forth. So I, I, I know you're into this and we're ready to roll. As we look at it today, we're going to uh, be making an overview of, of the book. Uh, you know, some have considered the two greatest autobiographies of, in American history, one being that of Ben Franklin and the other that of Henry Adams, who was the grandson of John Adams. Uh, it is said by one historian that Franklin shows us how to get ahead in life, and Henry Adams shows us the, the impossibility of doing so. Well, the book of Hebrews shows us neither. Rather, it shows us that what life is about and how it can be lived because of Jesus Christ. In very unique fashion, the book of Hebrews, in, in, in very great detail, as we'll see as we go through, highlights the greatest need of humanity. And the greatest need of humanity is not what most people would choose or think. It's not having more money or more friends or, or a better life, the good life, or having more fulfillment or a bigger home. None of those things are the great needs of life. The great need of life is something very different. It's something that's missing in, in all lives that uh, do not know Christ, and that is a connection with Jesus Christ. The great need of life is that we're separated from Almighty God. We're separated from our Creator, and that is our primary need. Now, most of us know that down deep, that there's something missing. Some of our more articulate uh, thinkers have mentioned this. Oscar Wilde, for example, says, In this world, there are only two great tragedies. One is not getting what one wants, and the other is getting it. One of the Huxley says, sooner or later, one asks, even of Beethoven, even of Shakespeare, is that all? Little do most people know that the great problem is our separation from God. The, the most well-known quote from Augustine goes like this, God has made us for himself, and we are restless until we find rest in him. He was right on the target when he said that. We're restless until we find rest with him. But how do we find rest with God? How do we go about as unholy people being aligned with God so that we find rest in a holy God? How is that even possible? Uh, most people don't have any idea, but they try hard. They, that's what religions are all about. Uh, some Christianized religions, other world religions. But it's the idea that if I can just do a little more, if I can work a little harder, if I can... Uh, can uh, read the Bible a little better, if I can be a better person, then somehow I can be right before a holy God and I can find rest in Him. But the problem is that doesn't work because we never are holy enough. So everything that we can try to be holy before God fails. So there's nothing we can do. If we were to ask the question, what can you do to be right before a holy God? What can you do to find rest in Him? The answer is absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so what we needed is somebody to do something for us, and that's what God has done in Christ. What we needed is what God did for us, what only Christ could do for us. And so he's reached down, and he's given us a life that can be found in him, and that is what the book of Hebrews is all about. It is because of Jesus Christ that we can draw near to God. It's because of Jesus Christ that we can be right with God. 
is because of Jesus Christ that holy people can now find a way before him and find rest in him. That's the storyline of the book of Hebrews. And that's what we're going to be examining week after week together. But we're going to start out today with an overview. We're going to get in our spiritual helicopter and we're going to fly over the forest. That is the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look down and we're going to see what the highlights are as we do that. And then we'll return next week and start looking at the trees within that forest. But today it's an overview. And as we look down upon the book of Hebrews, as we begin to look at the big picture, what do we see? Well, a number of things. But first and foremost, what we see is, a, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the big picture from our overview of this book. The first verses go like this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. We, we see these verses, he starts out here. And I want to mention this, that the primary title for the Son of God, the primary title for Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews is the Son. Uh, 22 times in the book of Hebrews, he is called the Son. Uh, he is also called, uh, other, by other titles or names, he's called Christ nine times, but four of those in, is in chapter 9. Uh, he is called Jesus nine times. He's called Jesus Christ three times. And he's called Christ Jesus once. That is a total of 22 others. So exactly half of the times that Christ is mentioned by name, uh, he is called the Son. And so there's a message here for us. We're looking at the Trinity. We're looking at the second member of the Holy Trinity and what the Son of God has done for us. And that cannot be disconnected with what's going on here because we have to know exactly who he is to understand what he has done. And as we look at this and begin to look at the message of the, of, of the book, we find that uh, in, throughout the first 10 chapters in particular, the supremacy, the glory, the wonder, the greatness of Christ is showcased. Everything about this book is about the, the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ. And so, especially those 10 chapters as he moves throughout this section. Only someone who has the credentials of Christ can do what Christ has done for us. So with that in mind, let's look first of all at some of the things that we know about the person of Christ here in these first verses. And we find the verses I just read in chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, verse 1, that uh, as he hits the floor running here, he is not giving an introduction. This is very different than almost every other epistle in the New Testament. He doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't have any commendations. He doesn't have any welcomes. He doesn't do anything like that. He simply starts right off the bat by saying, God, after he has spoken to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways... And we'll get back to what that is about next week. In these last days is spoken to us in his son. And so that's what he, he has a message. He has a very important message to get at. And he's not going to waste time getting there. And so he moves straight into to that message. And so we see that our eternal destiny, our very life right now, and our eternal destiny hinges on two things. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. And so he talks about, first of all, the person of Christ. Who is this Christ that he wants to talk about? And so as we look at that, we go move on a little further in verse 2, and we begin to see that there's a number of descriptions of who Christ is. And there's six, six or seven of these here that we'll go back to next week and unpack them and see what they really are all about. But right now, just take a look at them, and I'll just kind of line them out for you. First of all, he's the perfect communicator. In these last days, God has spoken through his son. 
So this perfect communication through the Son reveals that a number of things about this Son. Who is he? Well, first of all, he is the heir of all things, in whom he have appointed heir of all things, to whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact rep representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So notice a number of things. First of all, he's the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of God. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is the purifier, the cleanser of our sin. All those things are true about Jesus Christ in these few little words that he pours out for us here. That's who he is. Now look at his work. And there's some overlap between his work and his person. But there's one thing in particular I want to look at at the end of verse 3 that, uh, that is going to identify what he does. It says here that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and on high. When he was done with his redemptive work on earth, he went to, the, to heaven. He was ascended, ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. If you sang, we sang a song a minute ago that's a really fine song, but if you notice there was a line in there that really is not biblically sound. It said that he stands before the Father. It doesn't say that in Scripture. The Scripture says that he sits at the right hand of the Father. And why that's even a deal, and why I even mention it, is because it unglues the whole book of Hebrews, if you believe what the song said instead of what Hebrews says. It, it takes apart and unglues the truth of what's happening here. Because the high priesthood of Christ, the fact that he sat down at the right hand, indicates that he is the high priest. And this is the linchpin, this is the launching pad to everything else he's going to say in the book of Hebrews. Everything else depends on this little phrase. He is the, he is the high priest. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He intercedes for us from that point of view. If he isn't doing that, you and I cannot be saved. And so this is a, the launching pad, really, for the rest of what he wants to say. And if we looked a few weeks, the last few weeks, at some of the Old Testament books of Numbers and Leviticus, I hope you got a view. The, the high priest never, ever sat down. The priests were always busy. They were always sacrificing. They were always doing this, that, and the other. They had to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over. Every day at the same, another sacrifice, another dead animal, another bloodshed. And they would go once a year into the Holy of Holies, the high priest would, to sacrifice. But he did it, had to do it every year, year after year after year after year for hundreds of years. But Jesus Christ has sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. That is the message of Hebrews. There is no more sacrifice. There is no more need for that. You don't have those kind of concerns anymore. Jesus has finished the, the course. Jesus has walked before us. Jesus has died for us. And now he has sat down from his work. It is finished. And that is why this little phrase is the launching pad for the rest of the book. So we're looking forward to unpacking all that in the weeks to come. But in our overview of the forest of which is Hebrews, as we look down off of our spiritual helicopter, what we see is a number of pockets within that forest that aren't so healthy. We see some deadness. We see some things dried out. We see some things dying. And so there is not, this book is not all sanguine and not all optimistic. There's some hard parts, some very hard parts in the book of Hebrews. 
matter of fact, there's a number of warnings, or five in particular, five major warnings in the book of Hebrews about those who are not necessarily moving forward as they should. And so he warns that there's a danger. This is the second major thing we notice. There's a danger of drifting away from the things of God and from Jesus Christ. There is a danger. And he pulls no punches in his talk about that danger. He's concerned that as he writes to these people that uh, some of them are not saved. He's concerned that some of them are saved, but they're not moving forward for the Lord. And he doesn't necessarily know who some of those people are, but he's concerned that some have lost their vision for Christ. Now let's give us a little backdrop here, a little background. This book of Hebrews is written by a, uh, a Jewish man, but we don't know who he is. Uh, we're never told. Uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of trees have died uh, for the cause of people writing down who they think wrote this book. I, I've got this really simplistic idea that if God wanted us to know, he would have told us. So we're just going to let that slide. But we do know he's a Jewish man steeped in Scripture, loving the Old Testament Word of God, loving many of the things of the, of the past. And he's writing to a Jewish audience. That audience um, might be a local church, might be a, a scattered group in a, in a region, uh, it might be uh, over the whole world, I don't know. But they are Jewish people who, who have professed Christ. They're Jewish Christians, or at least they claim to be Christians. But as he looks at his congregation from whatever distance he's at, he, he looks at them as a pastor looks at his people as I'm doing now. Whether he was a pastor per se as not, I don't know, but he had a pastor's heart. And what a pastor does, what I do every week when I get up here, I look out on this congregation of several hundred people and many others online, and I think, here is a group of people that I know, here's a group of people I love, here's a group of people I want to be a shepherd of, but I don't know the spiritual condition of every heart. I know in this congregation, most probably are walking with Christ, they know Christ, they want to live for Christ, or you wouldn't be here all the time. But I also know there's some out there that think they're saved and they are not. And that breaks my heart every week as I think that perhaps there are some who do not know Christ, but think they know Christ because they were baptized as a kid or they walked an aisle somewhere at camp or whatever, but they do not know Christ. And then there's always a group of people that do know Christ, but so what? I mean, I, I, I'm not going to press on. I'm not going to move forward. I'm just going to be comfortable in my Christianity and just show up at church once in a while. But they're not moving forward. And so as this author of Hebrews looks at his congregation, he's thinking about these other groups of people. Not just the ones that are moving forward as they should, which were there, but those that may not be saved at all but profess to be, and others who may be saved but are not going forward. And he's deeply concerned about those group of people. Some of his people wanted to go back into Judaism. They wanted to go back to the Old Testament ways of doing things. For some reason, they thought somehow that was superior. And he's writing to these people, and he's saying, that is utter nonsense. Everything today on this side of the cross is vastly better than everything on the other side of the cross. And he brings that up over and over again. Everything is better in the church age. Everything is better in the New Testament. He'll tell us we have a better hope, that we have a, a better traditions, that we have better priesthood, that we have a better covenant, and not only a better Savior, but a perfect Savior. Christ is superior to all that has come before. Yet, because of ignorance, 
because of immaturity, because of deceptive influencers and false teachers that were running around the first century world, this group of Hebrew Christians, some of them have lost the wonder that is Christ. And though he is vastly superior to anything in the past, they think that he's not. And they want to go back to the old ways, leaving behind all that Christ has done for them. Much like the, the Jews back in the Old Testament, remember Numbers 16, 13 we looked at a couple weeks ago? They said, well, we want to go back to Egypt. We remember the onions and the leeks and all that kind of junk. Big deal. But it was so much better in Egypt. Well, it wasn't better in Egypt. But they wanted to go back. They'd forgotten the glories that, that God had done for them, the wonderful things. And so these Hebrews Christians or professing Christians were doing the same thing. So they were contemplating abandoning the Christian faith and going back to the Old Testament Judaism. And Hebrews is written to show them the fallacy of all that. I read a quote one time by a pastor in another age who said this. I want you to listen to this. He said, the most dangerous thing is that the soul, by the neglect of little things, becomes accustomed to unfaithfulness. I want you to think about that for a moment. Matter of fact, I'm not a tattoo kind of guy, but if I was going to tattoo something on my hand, I might tattoo this little note here. Maybe I'll just write it on a piece of paper. But, okay, think about it. Consider it. The most dangerous thing is that, a, that the soul, by the neglect of little things, becomes accustomed to unfaithfulness. These aren't people that, that just up and say, I, I resist Christ. These are people that are neglecting little things that causes them to become unfaithful. Let's review very quickly the evidence of this spiritual deterioration among these, this congregation. Go to chapter 2. He begins to pick it up there. And you have in your notes, if you want to take the notes, the five different major warning things, uh, signs. And they all begin with D. So maybe you can remember them easier. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he talks about the danger of drifting from the word through neglect. The danger of drifting through the word, uh, from the word through neglect. In verse 1 he says of chapter 2, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For, the, for if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape, escape if we neglect so great of salvation? Drifting from the word through neglect. Chapter 3, verse 7, we have doubting the word through the hardness of heart. Doubting the word through the hardness of heart. Chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through the end of chapter, actually chapter 4, verse 13, but I'll read verse 7 and 8 to you of chapter 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness. Heart, doubting the word through the hardness of hearts. Here's the third warning passage. Chapter 5, 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. Dullness toward the word through sluggishness. Dullness toward the word through sluggishness. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Simple dullness, boredom, indifference, apathy towards a word that leads to sluggishness. Chapter 10 verse 26, if you want to go there all the way through verse 39, 
He talks now about despising the word through willfulness. Despising the word through willfulness. Verse 26 of chapter 10 says this, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What a powerful warning. And then finally, going back to, over to chapter 12, verse 14, and if you're looking at the notes that uh, we give you here, the reference is wrong here. It's chapter 12, verse 14 through 29. Not 19, through 29. The last one is disobeying the word by refusing to listen. Disobeying the word by refusing to listen. He says in chapter 12, verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for those who did not, for, for those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? These are four very significant warning signs to these people. And as we go through the book of Hebrews, once again, he's looking at a congregation. He does not know necessarily all their spiritual conditions. And he is warning them. He's concerned about them. And so he gives them these warnings. But for those who are walking with God, those who want to walk with God, those who know Him as Savior, what should they do? Well, that's our, that's our next picture here. And if we go to chapter 10, verse 19, we find the next stage in the book of Hebrews is that He's calling us to run a race that is set before us. And this should be the message to all of us here, I hope. We're called to run a race that is set before us. And that is from chapter 10, verse 19, all the way basically through the end of the epistle. Go to chapter 10 verse 19 verse though. This is the linchpin, the, the hinge, it's called that, in which he moves now into application. He has all, all but exhausted it seemed like all he wants to say about Christ with his very intense theological teaching about the Lord and all he's done for us. And he comes to verse 19 of chapter 10 and he's almost like saying, I've done it all, I've said it all. Of course, he could have said more, but, but he has given us all this material, and now he goes to the word, therefore. I would suggest you circle the word, therefore, in your Bible, because it's there for a reason, to show us that from that point on, he's going to start moving more and more into application of the truths that he has given us. And as he does so, he says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Therefore, we have a new confidence, he says at this point. Now he begins to unpack for us the various ways, the superiority, the supremacy of Christ, and all that Christ has done for us should impact the way we live. And he's going to lay out for us eight different things here that we'll look at very briefly. Eight different ways in which the fact that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, and Jesus Christ has done what he's claimed that he's done, what, what difference should that make in your life? As you go away today, I hope this is what you'll meditate on. What difference should these things make in your life? And he's going to talk to us about eight different things. I'll have to be brief on each and just go to it. To it. But go to chapter 4, verse 16 to start. Number one, and this is a major theme. Every one of these are major themes in the book. But this is a major theme that we, in chapter 4, verse 16, can draw near to the Lord. 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The first thing we can draw near. 
Everything, think, think with me, that's why we did some studies on the Old Testament recently. Everything in the Old Testament religious system kept the believer at arm, arm's length from God. Now we know from the Psalms though they could pray to the Lord, they could recognize His greatness, they could have some definite love for Him and so forth. But think of the religious system. From the temple to the sacrifices to the priesthood and everything else, it was designed to keep us at arm lengths from God. Think of the temple. The temple itself was sectioned up. Uh, most all the people were on the outside. They couldn't enter the temple. When the temple was built, there were certain sections in the temple where uh, there was a, a court for women and a court for Gentiles, but that was the outer section. And then you move into the holy place, and only the priests could go in there to do the priestly work. Then the holy of holies. Only a high priest could go there, and only once a year for that. Everybody else stood at arm's length by design. They could see the fire of God from heaven. They could see his cloud. Uh, they could hear his, his thunder but they could not enter his presence. But now, because of Christ, we can draw near to the very presence of God. And that is the consistent theme throughout the book of Hebrews. Think of a little girl, two or three year old girl, and she, she's a friendly little thing and uh, she talks to a lot of people, but she fell down one day at, at, in the nursery here and skinned up her knee. And what does she want? She wants mommy. She wants her mother. Why? Because her mother is, is the one who will take her in her arms and love her and sympathize with her and fix her up. And, and her mother is the one she wants to draw near to. Why? Because her mother loves her. Her mother is her most precious commodity at that stage. She loves her mother. Her mother loves her. And she draws near. Take that picture home concerning Christ. You draw near to him because of his great infinite love for you demonstrated and found in Jesus Christ. We draw near. Secondly, on the opposite end, chapter 10, verse 23, we hold fast. 10.23, we hold fast. He says this here in, in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. To a people beginning to drift from the wonders and the uniqueness of Christ. And I have no question that there's some in this room in a group this size who are right there. You're, you're on a borderline of drifting. Maybe you've already drifted some. Or you're contemplating drifting. You're not pressing forward. And by the way, if you're not pressing forward, you will soon drift. You can never rest on your past. And so to that group of people, he tells them, do not, do not let go. Hold fast to your confession. You know, throughout our lives as Christians, there are many times when we're tempted to doubt. There's times when we get bored. There's times we get distracted. There are times we want to give up. And, and if you're listening to me, you say, Whoa, I thought I was the only one like that. Well, you're certainly not. Every Christian has those moments when they're struggling with one thing or the other. There, we've had a, a great deal of dis discussion lately about those who are deconstructing. Those are the Christian celebrities who used to preach the Word of God, lead churches, lead ministries, sing at great concerts, write wonderful books, who've now said, we have given it all up. We don't believe it anymore. We've thrown it all away, and now we're writing books and singing songs and preaching messages against Jesus Christ. To such a person who contemplates that, 
the Lord has a message. Hold fast. Hold fast to that confession. It is not junk because it's based upon Jesus Christ. Hold fast. Thirdly, encourage others. Chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage one another. So he moves straight from holding fast to help others hold fast. See, you're not alone in the Christian life. You're, you, are, you are part of a body of Christ. You should be part of a local church body of Christ. Why? So you can encourage and stimulate others to love and good deeds. And so others can do the same for you. This, this, this is a caution about withdrawing from the body of Christ and going alone. Or not being part of a good local body of Christ. And by the way, there's, there are tons of Christians right now who go to church every week somewhere who are, who are in defiance of this, comment, of this passage right here. They're going to some church somewhere, maybe a large church where they can hide. They go there on a regular basis. They're getting, uh, getting some good music and a decent sermon, talking to a few people around them, and they go home, and that's the extent of their ministry within the body of Christ. Folks, that is anathema to your Christian life. Every Christian needs to have a body of Christ, a local assembly, in which they are stimulating others to good deeds, to walk with Christ, to hold fast, and others are doing the same for you. Throughout my life, there's been a few occasions in which I struggled with something or other, which I doubted. I remember back in my college days in particular, I was having a bit of problem on a few things. And one of the things that strengthened me the most was that I knew there were people who loved Christ, who I respected, who walked the walk and talked the talk, that I could turn to, not necessarily for, con for conversation or counsel, just that I knew they were there. And their faith was holding fast when my faith was not. Everybody, every child of God needs those people in their lives. These people didn't see the need. And so they drifted away from the assembly of the local church. Fourth, we need to recognize the consequences for rebellion. In chapter 10, verses 26 to 37, he talks about that. Let's just drop to verse 31. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You ever thought about that? He's writing to Christians here as far as I can tell. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. What does he mean by that? Verse 32, But remember the former days when you were being enlightened and you endured a great conflict of sufferings? He said, I'm, I'm greatly concerned about those who once walked with me but now are not. It's a terrifying thing to think about that prospect of having walked with Christ, but now you're no longer walking with Christ. Don't throw away, verse 35, what the Lord has given you. There he says it clearly, verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't throw it away. Maybe you're having a bad week. Maybe you're having a bad year. <laughs> I don't know. But don't give up. Don't throw it away. Hold tight to that which the Lord has given us. Recognize the consequences otherwise and the benefits of drawing near. Perhaps the, the best known story of this type in all the Bible is the prodigal son. Remember, he walked away from his family, took the heritage that he had, all the money. He wasted it on women and, and song and, and uh, food and riotous living, it said. He, he lived it up until he lost it all. 
And finally, when he lost it all, he said, maybe I can go home and be a slave to my father. And so he went home, and what did he find? His father didn't receive him as a slave. His father received him with open arms and said, welcome home, my son. You are not a slave. You are my son, and you are in my family. So if you are one of those, by, by the way, who've already walked away, the Father welcomes you back. Come back to him. Chapter 10, verse 38, we have a, 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 another takeaway, and that is to live by faith. Chapter 11 is the longest chapter in the book, and it is about faith, but it actually starts with 10:38. It says this, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has, has no pleasure in him. That's out of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 that I talked about at the funeral yesterday. My righteous one shall live by faith. By faith. There's two things he wants to say about faith. This is a great passage. He gives us the who-whos of, of Old Testament saints in chapter 11. But there's two things that he wants to definitely showcase. Number one is the righteous live by faith. I just read that to you. And then chapter 11, verse 6, the impossibility of pleasing God without faith. It is impossible to please him without faith. Verse 6 says that to us very clearly. The author catalogs all these people of faith then in chapter 11, but he shows that what set them apart was not their greatness necessarily. Some of these were not altogether great people, but they had faith. And they pleased God because of their faith. I, I think, especially in our day, it's very easy for us to not see the importance of faith. We see the Christian life is one that we live by sight by experience, by feeling. We, we, we gravitate towards that. But Scripture says his righteous one lived by faith, not by feelings or emotions or experiences or whatever else. Those are all extra. We live by faith. And sometimes we don't have the feelings. And sometimes we don't have the experiences. And therefore we live by faith because faith is anchored in Jesus Christ. In Greg Gilbert's a little book called What is the Gospel? He told of a time when he and his six-year-old son went to the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade there in New York, and, and the theme that year was to believe. And they had a believe-o-meter set up there in front of the grandstand. And there, whenever any group went by, a float went by or something, the, the believe-o-meter would, would move up a little further. And uh, when the dancing elves came by, they went up a little further. And finally, Santa Claus came, and the believe-o-meter went nuts. And the crowd went, went nuts. The children, the adults, everybody was screaming and hollering, Santa's here. And, he's there, and, and, his, and he said his six-year-old son looked at all this, and he says, this is nuts. This is silly. He, his son had been trained a little better than most of the crowd. For all the world, you'd think that everybody there believed in Santa Claus. And then Gilbert said this. I want to read this little statement to you. He says, that's what the world thinks about faith. It's a charade, a fun and, con and con comforting game that people are free to engage in if they wish, but with no real connection to the actual world. Children believe in Santa Claus and the, and the Easter Bunny. Mystics believe in the power of stones and crystals. Crazy people believe in fairies. And Christians, well, they believe in Jesus. That's what most people think today. But our faith is not in a fairy tale. 
Our faith is grounded and anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The sixth takeaway is found in chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, going all the way through verse 17, and that is to run with endurance. Run with endurance. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Is therefore, another therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses let us surround, uh, that surround us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance of sin which we so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In verse 1 here, he says, you're, if you're going to go forward for Christ, you're going to have to lay aside all the things that hinders that walk. Sinful things he mentions, but he also mentions other weights as well. Anything that holds us back from running the race that is set before us. And we do that with our eyes fixed on Jesus, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, of faith, is our eyes are on him. It's not on the circumstances. It's not on ourselves. It's not on our church. It's on him. We've fixed our eyes on him as, he runs, as we run that race. And we find that he is where? Well, he's at the right hand of the Father, right? That's what it says here in this verse going on down, verse 2. He was sat down when he was done at the right hand of the throne of God. And what is he doing there? Chapter 7, verse 23, he's interceding for us. And that is in reference to salvation. It is because Christ is at the right hand of the Father that you and I can be saved. And then in verse 6, it says this, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Who wants to be disciplined? This is the idea of a trainer. The Lord takes us when He saves us and brings us into His spiritual gymnasium. And He begins to train us for the, walk, the race that is set before us. It's like a good coach. Anybody that has ever had a good coach in sports knows that a coach makes you do things you don't want to do. They train you. They train your body. They, they get you in condition for the race set before you. And the Lord has taken us into his spiritual gymnasium and he's training us, he's equipping us, he's preparing us to run the race. Left alone, we're hopeless. We need his discipline, we need his training. And so he gives it to us. Seven, the seventh takeaway, chapter 12, verse 18 through 29. He talks about living a life of gratitude. A life of gratitude. Look at verse 28. He says this, Therefore, another therefore, isn't that amazing? Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Let us live lives of gratitude. We're, most of us are great complainers. Some of us could win an Oscar in complaining. You know, we, we like, we, we're good at complaining. But the Christian life is one that as we look at what Christ has done for us, what Christ is doing for us, what Christ is going to do for us, we can't help but break out in thankfulness and gratitude. And so he calls us to do that. Let's not be like grasshoppers hopping around looking around everywhere looking for something to make us happy. Let's remember that we are his and we live on the basis of his graciousness to us. And then one last thing, we live according to his will. Chapter all of chapter 13 talks about living according to his will. And in verse 21 he says this, to equip you, the Lord is going to, to equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. What do you think the Lord is doing in your life right now? I say, well, I don't know. I've been having some hard times. I've got some big trials in front of me. I've got some difficulties. What, what is the Lord doing in my life? He is equipping you in every, notice that word, every good thing. 
to do his will. It's so important that we understand the meaning of this verse. He is equipping us to be what he wants us to be for every good thing. That is pl- so we are pleasing in his sight. And so a book that is filled with heavy theology and discussions and warnings and instructions closes with this application that every Christian should be living tethered to the great truths of the Word of God that we might live as He wants us to live. Our orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy. That is, our, our sound doctrine leads to biblical living. That's the essence of the Christian life. Learning truth and living truth is our model here, drawn from the book of Hebrews. Warren Wiersbe says this, Our lives are so full, they're empty. We boast about the quantity of our activity without admitting the lack of quality in our experience. We know how to count, but we do not know how to weigh. And we are the losers in the long run. Into that enters Jesus Christ. He's Lord of Lords, and He is King of Kings. He is the Redeemer of mankind. He is supreme over all things. He's exalted above everything. And because of Him, you can draw near to God. Because of Him, you can have your sins forgiven. Because of Him, you can live in the presence of God now and forevermore. And because of Him, you have an invitation from God to draw near. Father, we are we're blown away by the message of Hebrews. It is overpowering. It is so strong and so wonderful and so glorious that we could probably study this book forever and never get to the bottom of it. Lord, we thank you for the instructions and the teachings of Scripture, for the things you give us to live for you. We're not left to our own devices, our own ideas. We have this wonderful word from you. May we treasure it, Lord, and may we live it. I pray today, Lord, for those in this room who have never drawn near to you for salvation, that today might be that day, that they might see that you have opened that door and you are drawing them to yourself. And I pray that that would happen among hearts here. And for all of us, Lord, as we look at our own lives and see a need to move forward as you want us to, may we make the applications that we need to make. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.